0: I am so excited to tell you that InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor are long-term sponsors of this podcast, and here's something I want to tell you about. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. The Portfolio Manager is Nathan Bell, a talented investor you may have heard on the Rask Network multiple times. The Select Value Fund is designed for investors seeking international diversification and Aussie companies with superior financial metrics. You can invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV-offer. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV-offer. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure disclaimer and link to our financial services guide in the show notes drew meredith welcome to this australian investors podcast episode mate good to be here as usual recording remotely today we haven't done one of these in ages yeah it doesn't quite feel the same does it no especially with your camera off um (laughs) you're a bit you're a bit gun shy today but i just for everyone's benefit drew did send me a photo of a special t-shirt he is wearing uh, and it does say Finance Bro on it, just in case anyone was thinking that we we skip out on all the fun stuff. We uh, we still get to have a bit of fun remotely. There's a special uh,
1: T-shirt ready for you too when we get back ooh, in the office.
0: Okay. Okay. So maybe we'll have to record the next uh, Two Cents episode. We'll record it and stream it to YouTube so everyone can take part and have a bit of fun. But, mate, today we're going to talk about – we're going to answer questions, obviously. We're going to talk about some RBA stuff. We uh, We have had a lot of questions, I think, in terms of – questions coming through. This is probably the biggest week we've ever had. So thank you everyone who, who does send in a question. You can do that on the RAS websites or in your your podcast player. So when you're done listening to this episode, there's a link there that just says, ask a question uh, and just select the Australian Investors Podcast. Like we would there's so many questions. I tried to cull some questions because I thought you have to tell me it to answer. Depends. You said short answer, please, Drew. <laughs> yeah, in the notes that I had, like, short answer, very short answer. Short answer. Very, very short answer. And he's written in the notes, it depends. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> multiple so, times. <laughs> so multiple times. And just a, just a reminder to anyone that is listening, um, we do answer questions, but they are strictly limited to general financial information. So if we do answer your question, we're not giving you personalized advice. You'll have to see a financial planner like Drew or someone else. Um who can give you that that kind of advice? But we do try and be as helpful as we can and point you in the right direction. Drew, as always, we start with what we've been working on. I know you've been in Sydney this week. Um, what have you been up to?
1: Yeah, Sydney was a fun one. So it was International Women's Day on Wednesday. Um, one of the mm. one of our one of our team members, Rashana, in Waddle Partners, um, is part of a kind of a networking and mentoring group called Creative Women's Circle. So we hosted a few tables at the. International Women's Day event up there, mm. which was uh, in uh, probably, a, as, as they described on stage, a, a reverse of every other meeting that most women have been to in finance. There was six men, I think, in mm. a room of 120 people. Uh, so, the yeah, tables were turned for a day.
0: Which is, which is good. That's great. That's yeah. um, great. I mean, we're just talking off air about how, you know, a lot of uh, women present to financial planners that have – Mass significant portfolios, and I-, I-, I personally, mate, I've never understood why the finance industry seems to cater so much to men. I just don't personally. I don't understand this. So it's just like a. I got to. I just got to say that. Like I just don't understand it because uh, so many w- women listen to this podcast and listen to our finance podcast, like thousands of women, and um, I think the finance industry is missing a trick uh, by not catering to that. So we've got some questions about this actually in today's Q&A. So we'll, we've got the best one for last, so to speak. So we'll kind of riff on that in a minute. But um, there's also, as we record, we're recording this on Friday, March 10th. There's another one of those events going on in Melbourne, which is great to see. Um, but what else? What's, what else is on your mind? mate? I think you've also you know, been feeling a bit low lately. Feeling a bit low? A <laughs> bit, bit feel low?
1: A little bit, a bit of a <laughs> I think uh, yeah, my business partner Jamie was uh, texting me photos of Phil O delivering his speech this week. But uh, no, my bet's looking better and better by the day.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't have the ominous sounding music remotely, but not, um, that, not that I bet. Uh, yeah, we're not bet. We're not. We're not punters. No, not We're, no, we're investors. We're investors. Uh, so yeah. So so what? What? What's the latest, mate? Well, tell us about that. Actually.
1: Well, the RBA obviously increased interest rates this Tuesday again. 25 basis, 0.25%, um, and uh, delivered a speech afterwards, which is, was quite shocking when you think about it, that um, the percentage of after-tax income, so your disposable income taken up by mortgage repayments, is about to hit uh, a record high. So at rarely at any point in history is the have, have your mortgage repayments been this higher portion, and that's because interest rates have essentially gone from under two to over 6% for a lot of people. In less than twelve months, um, but interestingly, interest rates went up, bond yields fell. We, so what what does are you find that? We will find that at home. What does that mean? So essentially, so right before or earlier this week, the ten-year government, Aussie government bond yield was three point nine percent. It fell mm-hmm. to three point seven percent in about two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the bond? So if you think about the ten-year bond yield, it's essentially predicting what, trying to predict what interest rates will be in the future. And it's saying that that the market or people investing into bonds think interest rates uh, will be lower. And actually, you know, if, if the 10-year bond yield is 3.7, the cash rate's now three point six six. So <laughs> you're not getting much reward for, you know, for holding a 10-year bond, eh? No, that's so it. It's, yeah, it's suggesting that rates have probably peaked where they are um, and that there's significant risk of, of recession or, and, and with recession comes... Interest rate cuts usually. Um,
0: <laughs> I can't do the ominous <laughs> sounding mean myself, but um, that, through his talking, he's got a bit bit of narrative bias, here, confirmation bias. He's but it, it. makes
1: <laughs> surely it makes sense. Like you've you've never seen this interest this level of interest rate increase in such a short period of time. It's it's barely filtered through oh, yeah. the economy
0: yet, but we're still increasing rates. So, well, the thing that's the thing that's really interesting about this is the savings rate has pretty much evaporated. Like it's just completely disappeared. So four and a half percent. Yeah, what people were saving during COVID, which was incredible amounts of money they were saving, is just completely gone. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, think about that turnaround in just a couple of years. You know, that's that's incredible, and that's with interest rates where they are, right? And they haven't. A lot of people haven't felt the impact yet. So.
1: And the restaurants are still full. Every time you're out in Sydney or Melbourne, all the bars are full. All mm -hmm. restaurant. You know, obviously the the chin chin effect downstairs (laughs) at our office, but there's no shortage of people going out and spending money. The airports, most flights are still full, Mm. Um, but then some of the data which I think I put into the notes was uh, I think one of the the Franklin uh, fixed income group showed this and it was that a lot of data is now coming out weaker than expected. Naturally, you should expect it because interest rate increases are hurting everyone at the same yeah. time that energy prices are going up. So, unemployment fell, to, uh, sorry, increased to 3.7% when the market was expecting 3.5. GDP was 0.5 rather than 0.8. Mm-hmm. That's what they were expecting. Wage, wages were up by 3.3 rather than 3.5. Uh, and inflation in January was significantly lower than predicted as well. So clearly, it's having an impact and we know it's always had a lagged impact, Um, but you've still got this. We spoke to someone during the week, this threat of uh, the interest rate, do you call it a cliff or a Mm -hmm. waterfall? Not a waterfall, it sounds too nice. It'd have to be a cliff. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of fixed rate mortgages set to go from under 2% to over 6% in the next 6 to 12 months. So
0: yeah and this is the i think this is where the savings rate is really important because the savings rate is showing us what's happening now but what happens in two three four months from now i think you made a note i don't know if it was this week or last week but you made a note just basically saying that as usual the rba or just the central bank is hiking rates into what will probably be a significant downturn in the economy so that very rarely you know it's like that old, you know, a hammer and a nail, right? That's the only tool that they have, the the nail being inflation. And it's a very blunt instrument, right? At times, they can be raising rates um, and we're still yet to see all of the impacts filtered through. We understand why they do it because they have to stamp out inflation, but it can be significantly damaging to the economy. And that's what they need to happen maybe to get inflation back down into that 2 to 3% range. Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, then I was, uh, there was some data. I think in another article, another podcast I was listened to that said the average period uh, from the last rate hike to the first cut is actually between eight and ten months. So my twenty twenty three might be slightly <laughs> off if that is correct. <laughs> Maybe it's February next year. Yeah. Uh, but it just tells you they the central banks because it's so blunt they tend to go too hard and then uh, have to cut pretty quickly because they know you know cutting. Helps it, everything, helps spending, helps property with a similar mm. lag effect, too.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was chatting to Kerry Craig from JP Morgan this week, just yesterday, actually. And I think their estimate is that the RBA will pause from here. And if they need any more, it'll just be one in, rate increase. Uh, yeah. But he was saying, like, the the impact on property prices, which is quite interesting, um, is that it's you know, property prices went down nine percent nationally, might fall. A little bit further from here, but the recovery is unlikely until we see the catalyst of lower interest rates. So, they might, property prices might stabilize, like the rate of falls in property seem to have slowed, but until we see an, a, a drop in the interest rate, is we probably won't have a catalyst for property, which is quite interesting, um, and I don't know how that plays out from my my decision to launch the Australian property podcast. So we shall I think see. It's, it'll
1: be more relevant than ever. You're going to get so there's property has been so central to wealth creation in Australia that you know there's going to be so many decisions need to be made or not need to be made, and people are going to need the information to to make them. I think.
0: Um, yeah. Well. Yeah. True. So, just on that, mate, I thought I'd just do a call out. So, we've just we're launching a, a new podcast series called the Australian Property Podcast. It'll be co-hosted by myself, Pete Wargent, who many listeners will know, uh, Amy Linardi, who's one of Australia's top buyers agents, and Chris Bates, uh, one of Australia's number the number five mortgage broker in the country, actually. So. The four of us will be riffing on property over on the Australian Property Podcast. It's the red image; you'll see it on the RAS website. Go and check it out. It launches in the next two weeks. So, um, it's, yeah, I mean, the big, the, the big thing, and there's a lot of questions on this. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of questions around interest rates, for like on property versus investing in shares. I personally think, Drew, that in our community, in the RAS community in particular, um, that the talk has definitely like, it's already well and truly shifted away from, you know, getting started investing and all that sort of stuff. And people are opting for how do I save money? How do I save money? How do I save money? Um, It's kind of the switch when personally, I think now is a great time to think about long-term investing. Like I, we said this in December last year uh, and again, earlier in January. I don't, I don't, like, I feel like now, for me personally, is a great time to be investing. I don't, I mean, there are risks, of course, there are always risks in the short term, but I feel like, I feel more confident about long-term investing now than any time in the last five years. Definitely. You just, you know, everyone thinks you can always wait when you're investing
1: for a better time, when everything's, and you know, all the risks are gone, all the uncertainty's gone, you know, war, what's happening in China, what's happening in policy changes and super, anyway, all these kind of things, there's always enough reasons to put your cash under a pillow. Mm. Um, but you're actually, everything's are much better priced. You're getting better risk, re, you know, return for the risk you're taking in all kinds of asset class today than you were at 15, 18 months ago. Um, so it makes complete sense. You just have to try and black block out the, uh, noise as much as possible
0: yeah like the volatility you, and yeah
1: you look at the headlines in uh, in a lot of media and it's like counter headlines at the same time to be pro gold anti-gold or pro pro infrastructure anti it's and there's so many different messages it's hard to hard to bring it all together
0: yeah um i'm just looking at some of the headlines of the afr nothing really jumping out to me um other than Australia buying two nuclear-powered subs or something like that. But, uh, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. There's a lot of counter headlines. And some of the headlines are just ridiculous, to be honest, not just from AFR, but everywhere, uh, including probably our own websites. Um, but, you know, these things happen. Clickbait. Um Yeah, back, That's it. So... I mean, that's the thing. Just try and see through the smog of the short term and focus on the long term. I think maybe I'll just call out two more things before we maybe get on to what's happened in the market this week or what else you've been working on. Uh, two things that happened over in Raskland is we crossed 20,000 students enrolled in Rask courses, which is incredible. Uh, we started on this journey about two to three years ago, and more and more students are enrolling every month. So if you take a course from Equity Mates, um, chances it it will be on our website. So we've partnered with Equity Mates, which is awesome. Um, We've got more courses coming out with the Australian Shareholders Association, uh, some of the biggest social media people that you know, as well as um, some industry participants like advisors and and so on and so forth. So if you haven't already enrolled in a course on RASC education or directed your family there, there's value investing courses. Uh, We just did a a big intake for the value investor program, uh, which closed yesterday, actually. Um, And that means now I've got to do a two-hour webinar on valuation with the, with the the team. So that'd be heaps of fun, but I go and check it out. You know, we, um, we are actually offering, I think it's almost any of the courses you can get for free, almost any of the courses you can get for free with the coupon code 20, we've got a hundred spots to give away to celebrate. Credit to you. Credit. (laughs) Uh, 20,000, that's massive. Well done. Thank you, mate. Thanks. Yeah, it's taken a while. We're enrolling now. We are enrolling I think we've been doing this for about three years, and we are now enrolling—I'd say at least over a thousand students a month, which is getting significant now when you think about that. So um, the snowball of it—it's—it's it's slow, but it's snowballing, which is just awesome. So uh, we've got more collaborators coming on, like I said, ASA. Um, we've got some property courses coming. We've got a heap of stuff coming, which is awesome. So, um, but mate, what have you been working on? Tell me. There's there's a couple other things you've been working on, and then we'll roll into some questions in the market.
1: Yeah, we, we're doing this growth event for advisors up in Sydney and Melbourne in a couple of weeks' time. We've got a super interesting speaker joining us for that, a guy called Michael Collo, um, expert, or his, I think he used to be a quant, so a quantitative analyst for a, a fund manager, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's lot of done a lot of historical work in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So oh, cool. he's yeah going to be coming into a keynote presentation uh crossing you know the at the very basic level using chat gpt within your business uh and then expanding on the incredible opportunities coming out of it uh as well so we've got and Nick Griffin we're also talking at that event oh, yeah. and like the the arms race in uh semiconductors and microchips because they're basically exactly the, one of the most important things in powering all the computers that are driving AI and machine learning mm. that help us make these cheeky LinkedIn posts without
0: having to come up with them ourselves. <laughs> I, um, I was chatting. I did a lunch and learn this week with a startup called Fresho, which is a fantastic software company. Um, and one of the questions from the engineers there were like, what are the companies involved in uh, artificial intelligence? And I actually forgot to say ASML. Uh, which is the company that Nick Griffin came on this podcast and talked about uh, as kind of like it's like the linchpin in semiconductors. Uh, so that would be super interesting to have So when's that coming up? Twenty second, twenty ninth. Twenty second in Sydney. Twenty ninth in Melbourne. Okay. Are they sold out? Uh, no, still still open for advisor registrations yeah. Okay, so uh, this one's just advisors, for advisors right? Advisors, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you are interested in the growth symposium from the inside network, we'll put, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. I'll just make a note of this now. Um, go and check it out. And, you can meet Drew and talk to him about his new finance for t t-shirt. Uh, while he's there. <laughs> so advisors only, of course. Um, but if you are interested in events, you can head to the Rask events, just Google Rask events. And we've got a few coming up as well. Um, anything else you want to share with us, Drew? Oh, there's always a lot. Um,
1: started talking about a book
0: <laughs> oh. talking is a lot um <laughs> tell us what, what would this book be on retirement retirement okay
1: yeah i mean that's as everyone can tell I'm get
0: excited about it, it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: It's a long way off for me but uh i mean as everyone can tell we, whenever we talk on here we we talk about how much we focus on retirement now our our kind of approach has changed over the years so there's there seem to be uh as as we run that self wealth series Mm. with yourself and the passive income that we did, uh, there seems to be a lack of real uh, opportunity for those seeking to, you know, understand what to do in the lead up and in retirement. So um, watch your space could be the best thing to say there (laughs) rather than (laughs) don't put any dates around it or anything. That's with my business partner, Jamie, of course. Yeah, (laughs) TBC. Could be could be 2027 by the time it comes out. but.
0: But that's actually really interesting because I, I mean we you and you Jamie and I debate about this uh, regularly. And I think for the audience, like for a retiree or near retiree audience, probably one of the best things they can do is pick up a book, right? Exactly. Like other than see an advisor, but just pick up a book and just learn what they like the the broad like best practice. Um I mean, in terms of being able to get value for money of a book, was like twenty or thirty bucks? Um, pick up the book, have a read. At least at the very least, um, having the conversation with an advisor will be you'll feel much more comfortable about that so i think that's the one it would just be a minimum takeaway from that so i think that's a really good idea that you and jamie are pursuing that so good stuff mate good stuff let me know um when it comes out and uh i'll i don't know Read it. <laughs> come to the book launch. <laughs> of course I will. I'll come to the book launch to get free drinks. <laughs> no, it'll be heaps of fun. So let us know. I'm sure we'll, we'll hear more about that in time. Um, okay, so let's switch gears, mate. We are, as usual, about 20 minutes in and haven't um, – we just talked cr- a bit of crap for a little while. Um, what's been happening on the market? And then we'll get to some questions. Good to a, you, Andrew Deremuth. Yeah, f- interesting
1: few weeks, hasn't it? So pretty – it was a pretty negative February. We just did our um, – uh, market update for Waddle, which we I think we put on YouTube and share with our uh, subscriber base as well. But a couple of interesting things this week. So InvoCare, funeral bond uh, provider. So it's almost like an insurance or annuity company. Got a takeover offer. or not a takeover. Sorry, don't say that. Uh, had uh, a private equity group sneak up the register. So the share price went up something like 30%. I know that's been a pretty popular stock for, for dividend investors. Um, but essentially they hold and invest cash for prepaid funerals. So it's probably similar to like a Warren Buffett, um, statutory fund almost with quite, not quite the requirements of an insurance company. Um, and
0: then zero had a a massive week. I think that's one of your old, is that one of your old favorites? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just, uh, InvoCare, um, owns White Lady Funerals and a few other things, um, <clears throat> there's only two things that are guaranteed in life, and that's death and taxes. So that's that's the old that's the old uh, narrative for uh, dividend investors in InvoCare. Uh, and funeral expect-
1: bonds actually help you get more pension as well. Oh, really? There you go. Yeah.
0: Okay. So there's um that's under the ticker symbol IVC IVC on the ASX. Yeah. So Zero came out um, announced that it's cutting a bunch of employees. Uh, and which stock is not Price went up. Yeah, it's not good for the employees, but um, went up about eleven percent on the day. So that was uh, Thursday. Uh, the, the 9th of March. And the, I guess the key thing is, like they got the new CEO, uh, Sukhinder Singh, Cassidy, who basically said this, and I quote, we have made strong progress in executing our strategy. However, as we aspire to build a high-performing global SaaS company and to enable Zero's next phase of growth and drive better customer outcomes, we need to streamline and simplify our organization, end quote. So the the seven to 800 roles will be going across the business. 15% of their workforce. Yeah, which is a significant amount. Uh, and the, the the I guess the 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 outcome is this that it will uh, improve Zero's operating profitability at the expen- operating expense uh, level. So and this is an FY '24 they're talking. So they want to bring that operating expense ratio down to seventy five percent. So that's as a percentage of revenue. Which in my opinion is the thing that I've always talked about with Zero. I don't like to see the roles going. Of course, it's terrible. But I Zero's had to make these decisions for a long time, and my thesis for holding zero for a very long time is, um, they can afford to cut costs and still grow. I think that's the the key thing, and I think a lot of these SaaS companies are figuring that out. Um, like I, this is not from not a anecdote that I've got from anyone that works at zero, but from others that work for the big tech companies. Um, the narrative between. A small startup tech company's software engineer and a large tech company software engineer is completely different. It's like chalk and cheese. In a lot of the small companies, like the engineer has to be across like ten different things. They're working really hard for their for their admittedly very good salary. But a lot of the the anecdotes and rhetoric that I'm hearing from the big tech software engineers is it's no it's it's a very cushy role by comparison. And that's a very generalized statement, but I just think like. For a lot of these businesses, you don't need four thousand employees to run it. Didn't they, um, win,
1: they went a bit too hard in that arms race, and didn't with fear of missing out on on good programmers.
0: And yeah, absolutely. And so the the, the company also made another decision that they're going to cut the Wattle acquisition, which they acquired in twenty twenty. I bought uh, so Wattle, not Wattle Partners. Oh,
1: sorry. Right. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, you're under new management <laughs> and also your business is about to be closed down because uh, they expect to um, they expect to exit that business so I just think like this is for me personally this is a very good decision I think reducing cost in the face of what they're you know maybe there's a bit of a shaky time ahead for small businesses um, at the same time as they probably don't need a lot of this cost and um, I think that's a good. I think this is all a really good decision from the business perspective. Obviously, it hurts if you're an individual, and I feel sorry for people. But if you, I mean, if you worked at zero, you're very employable somewhere else. I'm s- certain of that. Uh, and I guess the other thing is, like, one of the things that I haven't seen from the zero board of directors is a proper sh- strategy around costs, um, right from the very top, um, like from the chair to the board. I just think there has to be some like accountability there um and i'll leave i'll leave listeners listeners kind of know what i'm talking about but um unless that changes at the board level then like unless that kind of decision making process and the accountability to shareholders to drive profitability changes then zero is not going to perform at its optimal level so i'm actually glad to see this decision uh, and i'm a share, shareholder by the way so that's I mean that's i was, what yeah, I was,
1: there's a weird thing going on here too. I was looking at um, Instagram reels, of course, before. Uh, it's where you get all
0: good financial information. <laughs>
1: uh, but uh, like we were talking about job cuts, they had, uh, so Elizabeth Warren was questioning uh, Jerome Powell, so chairman of the central bank in the US, um, and questioning this idea that, you know, they're, he's committed to fighting inflation, but she was saying at the expense of 2 million jobs. Because the Fed's essentially saying they need unemployment to go up to cut inflation, and it was this—you know—you're seeing all these companies cut. As so far, it hasn't impacted unemployment too much. But what's what's the cost, and where does that balance out? It'd be it'd be interesting to see. Um, and that same idea you were saying before was uh, increasing rates into a slowdown. So how are they? Is the recession going to be deeper than it needs to be um, because they're so aggressive on rates?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um... That's the, the balancing act, right? The balancing act
1: that we have. I think Australia is in a much better position than the US, as we can see so far. You know, Wage growth isn't out of control. Sentiments, most things are falling. Saving rates are falling. Um, whereas the US seems to be just super resilient.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, you also got the one of the big things that happens in the US is you've got 30-year mortgages, right? So the impacts of some of the inflation and those types of things have to take a toll some other way, Right. Um, and that's often through those types of things. So really interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see it play out. Um, anyway, we should probably get to we should probably get to ask some questions, if that's all right with you, Matt, unless there's something else. I know, good. All right, let's get into it. So as, as always, questions are limited to general financial advice only. Seek the advice of a licensed financial planner. If you're looking for financial planning advice, you can get in contact with Drew at Water Partners and the team by following the link in your podcast player. Okay, so best dad ever says, Love your work, guys. You're a stable for my Saturday mornings. Well, that's very nice. Um, Give us a bit of information, uh, saying that they've invested for kids and they they do it, you know, just to give them a head start. Um, I'm thinking about their university study now and helping them with that, assuming that that's what they want to do. Should we set up a new trading account just for the reason of university study or simply add to the existing fund and somehow keep track of the allocation of funds? Realistically, both funds would invest in exactly the same thing would love some help with this one. So basically just asking the question of, should I have two different accounts to fund two different expenses for the kid's future? Maybe one is like financial future and the other one's education.
1: True. I'm pretty uh, straightforward on this and the old KISS principle, keep mm-hmm. it simple, stupid. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> is there a comma in there? Uh, I mean, you're essentially you're doing it for the same purpose, for the benefit of your kids. Uh, and I think as soon as you start setting up, I'm not sure if you're saying you've got a family trust or a a new account within it, but there's a risk of duplicating costs or um, I'm kind of keep it simple, invest in the same things and record it in a spreadsheet. Uh, Don't, you know, don't overcomplicate your life. And like Kate says on the finance podcast, is it automate whatever you can. So yeah, don't add extra things in um, if you Mm. don't need to. So hopefully you disagree with me.
0: Uh, Well, I can understand why that if I play devil's advocate, I can understand why they do this. I split up say like my core and satellite portfolio because it's really, it's just a lot easier. And in fact, the benefit of that is that I can track the performance of my satellite portfolio a bit easier because you can use share side or whatever you want. So that for me is why I do it. But as for separate accounts for separate objectives, I think that just gets too messy. I agree with you. Like I, I just think it, yeah, I just think it gets messy. So I've still for the kids. So you just roll them in together and keep a track. Yeah, that's it. So that's all going to the same pool. And I can't imagine, unless there's like target dates for university versus future, I imagine they're around the same time anyway. Like if you are going to give money to your kids for their 18th or 21st or 25th birthday or something like that, it's around the same time as university fees anyway. So if there was a significant deviation then maybe there's a cause for having a different strategy for that money but one portfolio is enough great question though because it's um it's a, just a like a i guess a nuanced uh, debate there uh bin chicken writes in bin chicken good name um my son would like that one <laughs> uh is having a core portfolio of vdhg so that's the diversified etf that's a 90 10 portfolio it's 90% growth assets 10% defensive assets and super with vanguard super doubling up what do you reckon? Um, kind of it depends. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> what you're yeah, to do a achieve. Shot so. that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the VDH is just a high growth. So what that's like 1090, isn't it? 10% in bonds yeah. and 90% in uh, Australian and international shares, split yeah. fairly evenly. Yeah. Um, and Vanguard Super, uh, I assume you can invest into anything, but it'd be a very similar range of assets under there. Hmm. Um, yeah, what are you seeking to achieve? You're doubling up, but you're doubling up in a benchmark that's incredibly broad, broad. So you just got a lot of diversification underneath it. Um, not bad. Hmm. Not yeah,
0: not bad, not great. Yeah, I would yeah, I think I, I took this as a question around can I use VDHG as a core portfolio? And I think yes, you can. As drew says like one of the things that was obvious over the last three or four years is that if you had the vanguard vdhd portfolio um i think you realize that you just wish you didn't have bonds like in any of those diversified funds because bonds were just a terrible investment it was so obvious that you it was almost like there was a car crash and you you're in slow motion um and they couldn't do anything about it because that is the nature of the vanguard Diversified funds is you just have to be in those asset classes. Uh, but there will come a time when that kind of reverses, and being in those assets maybe now is the right time. So it kind of ebbs and flows, but I just think there's a reason that they're super popular with beginners. And I think VDHG is an absolutely fantastic core portfolio for beginners to start with and to learn about how it's all put together. Um, and then in super, maybe you want a little bit of difference. Like, so even though you might be using Vanguard Super, are there I don't, I don't know about the investment options, how they're made up, but I imagine that, as you said, through quite similar. Uh, I mean, I'm of the opinion that Vanguard is fantastic, but I do like to, to have a little bit of separation in the things that I do with my money. Um, yeah,
1: obviously- start thinking about on sector levels or asset class levels, do you want some controlling your exposure to Asia? Do you want other parts of the Aussie market or your smaller companies? Um, thinking about some broad diversification eventually. Yeah, it's not a, not bad for a core. Yeah,
0: not bad, and that's what we see in the the actual the dollar values going into VDHD. I think they're around about last time I ran the numbers about the average trade size for VDHD is about four grand per trade uh, on the ASX, and I think for some of the other ETFs, it's closer to like some of their more advisor friendly ETFs, it's like 90000 $90, dollars. So it's a quite large difference, but you can see people are using VDHD to slowly chip away at their core, which is a good thing. Um, okay. So, Wackadoo writes in and says, is there too much crossover having IVV, which is the S&P 500 ETF, in your portfolio with VDHG or DHHF, which is the diversified high growth portfolio from beta shares? So, it's just equities, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you're basically getting, I think that, I think DHHF is the all growth portfolio. I'm just going to check this. Um, so, yeah, all, they call it diversified all growth, which diversified and all growth doesn't really, I, I I don't know if those two things gel for me. It's like one time I heard on the Animal Spirits podcast, the, um, the Black Swan Growth Fund. <laughs> I was like, what, what? <laughs> um, there's so- a fund for everything.
1: The reverse Kramer, there's all that sort of stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it. So... Do you think that you can have an S&P 500 ETF alongside VDHG and DHHF? Uh,
1: personally, I prefer to get a bit more granular in what I'm selecting. So I don't like outsourcing, like you were saying, VDHG, which is controlling the asset allocation for me, and DHHF that's controlling the you know allocation between different parts of the equity market. I'm more likely to combine IVV with maybe a small cap exposure and Asia exposure and... Uh, Uh, Australian exposure, if that makes sense, and control that asset allocation myself. But um, obviously, I do that every day and I've got heaps of resources to do it. Um, But I think there's a bit of, there would be quite a lot of overlap. Uh, You want to know exactly where your exposures are lying because both VDHG and DHHF have a lot in international equities and you're essentially doubling down on the big tech stocks by holding IVV there as
0: well. Yeah. I'd, I'd kind of concur with that. Um, with 3 you do get a lot of global diversification, whereas IVV is just US. Um, I Yeah, I mean, I don't, well, I, for one thing, I wouldn't have all three of them, put it that way. Um, that would be massively just, it just wouldn't be the best expression of what you're trying to capture. Um, so mindful of the overlap, um, I think that, a lot of people see a lot of people would have this issue, Drew, because a lot of people would start, like we said before, with VDHG and then look at going, okay, I want to be a bit more tactile with it. Um, tactical, I, you mean? Tactical, tactical, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying? Tactical. Uh, so you you would want to be a little bit more hands-on. And so the decision probably wouldn't be, well, I sell VDHG because that would be a core portfolio might trigger tax and all that. So you might start to blend IVV in over time, but maybe you blend IVV in over time with something else. So maybe you then start to have your bonds, which we'll get to in a minute, and you start to have, you know, your emerging markets and those types of things. So it could be an evolution of an investment portfolio rather than just a point in time decision to buy or sell. Um,
1: okay. yeah, I think there'd be no Sorry. fixed rule. It's not like you get to a hundred grand and it's time to get rid of your VDHG. It's... What are your objectives? Do you do you have more interest? Are you do you want to do more research? And it's there's no yeah everyone tries to simplify it into a simple rule. There is, there aren't any. Mm.
0: No. So uh, it's another good. I think this this name might have uh, might be so far in the the lead for me, which is Egyptian in denial, spelled denial. Uh, hi team, massive fan of the podcast. Oh, thanks, uh, thanks denial. Uh, so given the current relatively high interest rates that will likely continue to rise in the short term, bold statement, are um, fixed income securities like bond ETFs a good short term or medium term play for younger investors given the possibility of recession? For younger investors, growth assets are usually the focus, but a near guaranteed 4 to 5% yield in the lead up to a possible recessionary period has me con- reconsidering where I invest new capital over the next couple of years. Bonds are back. Bonds are back, baby. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Load up. Oh, dude, this does sound like a Kramer. Kramer. Um, So
1: I'm standing up behind my desk at the moment, too. So (laughs) he's counting the table. Uh,
0: So the answer is yeah, I think you can. For the first time in a long time, a lot of investors will actually be interested in what's going on in the bond land. And I think, yes, I think that's the answer. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, And it doesn't just have, you know, you don't just have to hold
1: bonds forever as part of an asset allocation. You can hold bonds as a hedge or as an alternative to cash for a while. Um, And they've got the ability, as we've seen in every crisis, that the first thing central banks do is cut interest rates, which increases the value of bonds overnight, essentially. Uh, We were talking about it today um, or yesterday with some clients we were meeting. and they, you know, there's there's a potential if if a recession comes or if rates have to be cut that you could get a 10% return from bonds over the next 12 to 18 months. You're mm. already getting four or five from uh, from income, as you can see, interest, which is at a fixed rate. Uh, so you only need a rate cut to to get a capital gain
0: out of it as well. Yeah. So bond. The we the, we got a question towards the end, which I'll answer now, is um. What do you think of the Vanguard global bond ETF, the hedged one, which is VBND? Um, We've talked about this a little bit in the past. And for global bonds, I think it's kind of the superior bond ETF right now because it's diversified and all that sort of stuff. Um, And that's down about 19% over the past five years and 11% or 12% in the past year. And that's because interest rates have been going up. So... If if Andrew Derrymuth, our economist on the ground, is correct in his call, um, maybe we start don't even to have to be. Yeah, sorry, keep going. No, maybe now is the time to start thinking about these things. And I think you were going to say you don't have to be correct on the timing. It's um, exactly. It's it's a thing that can be in your portfolio because it now is yielding something. And that's
1: exactly. the key thing. Yeah, people think you have to time it perfectly all the time. Yep. Like, And the thing about buying bonds now, you're getting rewarded for taking the risk, the, mm. the, the very limited risk that there is in bonds. There's obviously the day-to-day volatility. Um, and there's probably a thing that, you know, the floating rate has been obviously of the most interest in the last six months or so. because VBND fell by 12%, so naturally people don't want to buy it because of the recent negative return. It's recency bias, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem with buying, so only buying floating rate at the moment, floating rate makes sense when interest rates are increasing, but as we said in the beginning, the bond yield started to fall, which means that the rate on which floating rate uh, instruments pay interest is also starting to fall, which means your floating rate income may fall. Um, And I think someone asked a question about building a portfolio only out of hybrids a few weeks ago. Um, Essentially, the risk of doing that, which we said at the time, is that if interest rates fall, your entire income falls.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the, the answer is yes. That's the short answer to that question. Susan wrote in and said... Uh, what would you recommend to buy today? Uh, and my response would be like everything. Uh, that, was so, <laughs> that's your I that was my response. That's your response. That was my response. But my response would be the same too. It's just like start with your, if you haven't invested, start with your core portfolio. That's going to generate most of the returns over the long term. And then you can think about like the individual things if you are so interested, like stocks and whatever. Um, but start with your core portfolio. So
1: there's always it. people who tell you the, you know, the ASX is overvalued because it's barely falling, but there's always parts there's always other drivers in that market that haven't driven the performance to where it is today. So, yep. um, and probably the same all over the world. There's so many, everything's significantly more attractive than it was 18 months ago on a long-term view. Yeah, Anything can happen in the short-term though.
0: Anything can happen in the short-term. This is the thing about long-term investing is it's long-term investing because we don't know what happens in the short-term. And you know, we just we can only know what we know. Like we've got some facts in front of us about what interest rates are now. There will be a hundred and one forecasts about what interest rates will do before this podcast is ended by someone somewhere in the country. Sounds smart. Um, and like Drew was saying before, realistically, you don't need to get everything right. Um, you don't need to time things perfectly um, to get good outcomes as a long-term investor. Uh, and I think just on the balance of things, what we know that there is downside potential, um, but there's also more upside from investing in businesses and and bonds and things today um, compared to a year ago. So, good question, very broad, but I like it. Um, Live forever says, and this is one that we might just uh, this might be one of the short ones, Drew, but. Um, I know you can't give personal advice, but interested in what your view are regarding TPD and life insurance as super. If someone is like, say, a healthy 50-year-old, imagine they've you know got them no mortgage because they're in that bracket. They uh, the kids have finished school and have a reasonable level of savings. So you know what w- w- would you? I know you talk about this a lot with clients. Drew is would you consider, as a general rule, like people are overinsured in that bracket for life and TPD insurance.
1: Probably when it comes to 55 plus, I think, maybe 50, plus. yeah, 50 might be a bit younger, you know, as everyone sees from all our writing, we do a lot in retirement. And I think Jamie and I both said multiple times, we end up cancelling more insurance than we
0: yeah,
1: than we recommend um, most of the time. And, you know, but the the purpose of insurance is to cover, uh, in, you know, insurable risks. So, cover your death or cover your disablement. And also to make sure that, if something happens, your family doesn't have to change their life significantly, at least for a period of time. So usually, while most of it sounds pretty good, you don't, you'd have you want to know that you've already got enough to retire and last your whole retirement. And if it's at fifty, uh, you know it's probably an extra ten years of your retirement before you'd think about cancelling it. And then always cost benefit. So how much uh, how much is it costing? It, usually fifty is not uh, out of control expensive. Um, but when you're starting to pay fifteen dollars or $20,000 for life insurance when you have no debt and you've got all the assets you need in super, that's when we start to, to weigh up um, the benefit.
0: Yeah. Um, just as a call out, I might just um, take the younger person's view here and just say something that's really important and it's hit home this week for me, Drew, which is that if you are in your 20s, in your 30s, especially if you're in your 30s and you've got kids and a mortgage, please insurance take 5 minutes of your life and go into your superannuation account and check your insurance make sure you've got the right level of cover and this really hit home for me week. I won't go into personal details not me personally but please go in and check and i want to stress this it is it will be the single most important thing you do this month for your Family, it's so easy as well. Just go in and check that you've got enough cover if the shit hit the fan. And I mean that. You never know what's around the corner. If you're a young person, you've got a house that's a liability, you've got family, you've got kids going through school, make sure you are covered for the right amount to cover that stuff if something was to go wrong. And the way to figure this stuff out is a rough rule of thumb is as follows. Imagine you died today. What are the... What are the financial responsibilities that you would have, not just today, but over the next 10 or 20 years to protect your family? I'm invincible. I'm not going to die. You are. You are a finance bro, so you have no <laughs> problems in the world. Um, I am a Finfluencer, so I don't have anything. That's, I've got a Ferrari sitting out the front that I was just taking photos with. So, But I just wanted to slow down for a second, people. If you are a younger person, Drew's saying he's cancelling more than he is taking me down. At 60. Just, yeah, at 60. If you're 30. In your 30s, in your late 20s, and you're thinking about kids and a family, please, you, even if this helps 1% of people that listen to the show, go and do this. I um, mean, I'm 40,
1: uh, and I've got insurance, so you can be 40 with it as well. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> but mine's just held through an industry fund. Yeah, same with mine, Australian yeah, Super. A big, That's a big, big chunk of mine. insurance, reasonable cost, um, nothing yep. nothing crazy, and I've held it, held it there forever.
0: And you can get expert advice on this. There are financial planners or actually the financial advisors who deal just with insurance. So they are out there. Uh, if you need uh, help finding someone, please just write into me and um, I might be able to find someone uh, for you. Uh, but yeah, just seriously. Uh, so next question comes from Hugh Jass, spelled J-A-R-S-E, Hugh Jass. Um, another, another classic plan words there. Could you review WTC again, please? Surely now Australia's greatest local based tech co. Might reviewers be peeved because you are always warning off stating that it's <laughs> overpriced, but its share price keeps going up. <laughs> it's like uh, me on
1: CSL for like
0: 15 years. <laughs> so, this is Wy- uh, Wise Tech Global. It's a software company that does logistics software. I can't remember ever being overly negative about this company, but I think there was a time when I went on the tally. It would have been like around COVID and I said, I'd like to buy it for 20 bucks when it was around about 30 bucks. It's now, what is it now? $64. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the company was started by Richard White, who is, uh, used to be a, a groupie uh, and travel around with bands and realize that when you travel, um, things are a bit, you know, it's a bit of a logistical nightmare when you're going through countries and all that sort of stuff. So there's a software company now that handles logistics. Uh, It's called Cargo Wise One is their software and it's charged based on the usage, uh, which is a fantastic business model. Richard White still owns over 40% of the company, which is a great sign to see, although I should acknowledge he has been selling, you know, in how's this true? Someone's selling regularly $6 million chunks of shares, um, but still has a shed load Uh, In the companies, you know. So, uh, if it's a twenty-one billion dollar company, it's about eight billion dollars. So you you can do the math there. Um, You got to pay for the jet fuel. Someone's someone's (laughs) going to pay for the fuel. Um, So, WiseTech, brilliant business. Bottom line, brilliant business. It would be in the top ten software companies in Australia. I can't say that it would be the number one. um, When I hold Prometicus, thank you very much. Um, But I just think it's a brilliant business. I've just always had a very hard time valuing it i think it's one of the stickiest software companies on the asx and okay so if we just take the the valuation concerns aside uh thanks hugh sure could you have it in a portfolio absolutely just my view on valuation is definitely moderated over the years definitely moderated over the years and by that i mean the valuation tail doesn't wag the dog as much but i would say that for the most part it is expensive. The shares are expensive. Like on every traditional metric, the shares are expensive. It's a super high quality business, um, and so the the trade off is as follows: if it is a super high quality business at a very expensive valuation, what you risk is you risk an incredibly volatile time if you invested in it, um, because you don't you could be overpaying. So one way to neutralize that is to buy in small amounts regularly, um, or just try and hope and pray although hope is not an investment strategy that it falls back down again i'll give you an example so during late 2021 wise tech shares traded around about 60 bucks and then by the end of the 2022 year so less than seven months later actually it was down to 35 dollars again so it went from 60 down to 35 um so that was only in seven months so there may be there may come times when you see that and then you can buy more than you otherwise would would I be happy to own a small pound of shares? Absolutely. But um, just be aware it doesn't look cheap. I think that's the, the the classic line with any growth company. So good question, Huge. Um, Sydney's shantytown landlord, that sounds interesting, <laughs> says, what are your thoughts on REITs at the moment? High interest rates can benefit their dividends, but also depress their unit price. Do they make for a good inflation hedge? Drew, can you answer this, but also explain what our shanty Town landlord is saying <laughs> about high interest rates can benefit the dividends because some people don't make that connection.
1: I don't make that connection broadly. Um, it's uh, You said short answer for this one, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, broadly, so property a REIT holds uh, multiple properties. You know, example would be Vicinity that owns part of Chadston and then a heap of other shopping malls.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: hold a lot of debt. Uh, so, higher interest rates can actually increase their interest they're paying on that debt Mm -hmm. over time and potentially impact on their dividends in a negative way. But on the other hand, higher inflation can help getting higher rents out of tenants because a lot of leases for landlords Uh, linked to inflation, particularly in the commercial or retail and office and the other sectors. Mm -hmm. Um, Impact on the unit price. uh, So the unit price of a a REIT, which is listed on the ASX is different to the value of the the assets in that REIT, similar to the way a listed investment company can trade at a discount or a premium. Um, But naturally higher interest rates will impact on the valuation of property. I think we kind of forgot about this because interest rates just fell every year for the last 20 years. Uh, but we've seen pretty quickly that if you, perfect simple example would be if you bought a industrial warehouse that was yielding you an income of four percent four years ago, you can now get four percent in a term deposit. Naturally, you would be the, the next buyer or the, the market would suggest you need to be pay, be paid more than four percent for that industrial property. So if that's six percent, then the, the value of the property would be significantly lower for the next buyer or or the way a valuer would look at it. So, mm. um, and yeah, the, the listed property sector fell pretty significantly so far uh, in, I mean, early in 2023 on that valuation concern, but it's starting to narrow a bit at the moment because there's obviously some other things at play too. Like you can't build a second Chadston very easily. <laughs> these mm. days. Uh, so there's the, this idea of replacement cost and interest rates actually increase the value, the, the the cost of replacing major assets. So, um, I think REITs will, will always have a role, uh, a potential role to play. I'm always, you'd be, the benefit of being in Australia is that there's multiple. You can buy retail, you can buy office, you can buy leisure. So, you can look at which sectors are uh, a better priced or which you think will do better in the next five to 10 years mm. and and build a portfolio appropriately. But they're not an automatic inflation hedge.
0: No, the next question is from Owen Rascal, who said, hi, Rascal. Do you like REITs? And would they be considered part of a core or satellite portfolio? Do you like the VAP or one of of the competitors? That's an ETF that invests in property uh, securities. Should investors hold REITs? For long term, like they would vast for example. Thanks for the knowledge. Um I'll just step in and say I do like BAP. It's an ETF that invests in REITs and other property developers and those types of things. So, yes, uh, I do like that. And I think it's a, it's I think it, like a big part of the portfolio is Charter Hall, but uh, that's because that's a big uh, business. And so, Goodman. Yeah, and, and Goodman, that's on, yeah. So, uh, you do get a lot of concentration, but it's a decent way to get exposure to the property sector.
1: Yeah, I think you can pretty confidently have REITs in your portfolio um, at at most times as part of your core strategic asset allocation. There's another one, DJRE, I think we talked about maybe on the Passive Income Series. Global, yeah. Global real estate with an ESG filter on it. Um, So it's always, think bigger than Australia. You know, you get great chanston, you'll get office buildings, but think about like data centers and healthcare property and all kinds of other parts
0: of the the asset class. which aren't Mm. always as as available here. Yep. Uh, Next question comes from investing BDSM, in brackets, that's bonds, (laughs) diversification, (laughs) simplification, and maturity. Calm down, close brackets. Are you trying Uh, to get through 12 questions (laughs) in six minutes? Yes. So looking (laughs) looking at adding bonds to my defensive (laughs) section of my core, um, and they're just asking about whether you'd use a bond ETF, um, some kind of mutual bond fund, like the, the listed bonds, you know, those ETIBs, or whether global exposure is worth the hassle. Um, what are your thoughts on something like V bond, which we've already talked about?
1: V B N D equals G O O D.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, and I, I agree. So there's that. In for global bonds, you've got V bond, V B N D, or you've got V I F from Vanguard, which is the international fixed. I would go VBND. That's yeah. my that's my if, preference. If you're
1: doing building blocks in bonds, I think you'd always start by looking at the index, what can you buy? Um, yeah. I think global bonds are just as valuable as domestic bonds. Um, you know, US treasuries versus Australian government bonds. So uh, both would have a role to play and they both be part of a core portfolio. And then you start to think about other parts of the bond market where we think there's an opportunity. Um, and I'm not sure, yeah, cut and paste it into here. There's some, you can build an in, a highly diversified fixed income portfolio solely from ETFs on the ASX at the moment. So yeah,
0: you can get exposure, yeah, yeah.
1: corporate bonds to credit to multiple parts of the asset class, but yeah, solid, solid core uh, in benchmarks. It's, and it's been a very difficult market to, for active managers to outperform. Um, though mm-hmm. you, you would say that many have smoothed the journey compared to the index at different times.
0: Yeah. Good good answer. Okay. So, we've got a couple of questions left. I'll um, just skip through a couple here. Talk to me, Goose. because um, uh, they've subscribed to the RAS Core membership. Thank you so much, Goose. Um, Wait, well, no, you're, I don't know what your name is, but I'll just say Goose. Um, so, yeah, Maverick, that's it. Uh, so, you've subscribed to our uh, RAS Core membership, which is great. And your question is, how big does the core portfolio need to be before you start looking at satellites? 10K, 50K, 100K? And what sizes should there be? Well, My answer is that it depends, as Drew would say. (laughs) Um, I see some people would wait until they're a couple of years into their journey before they start thinking about individual companies and that type of thing. Other people would say, well, I want to invest in individual companies, but I just don't understand enough. So I'll start with a small amount of my money today in those satellite positions and keep to my ETFs and all that other stuff on the side uh, and keep growing them both at the same time. My general broad strokes opinion of this is that investing is a three-year education minimum. And in that time, most people would be better served just investing in ETFs and building a diversified portfolio until they're at a point where they think they're comfortable to just even try investing even 1% of their money in an individual share or something like that that they've researched. So... um, I was asked during the week, would I, if I had hundred grand, how would I split it up? Just as a very broad rule, rule, maybe this is just for me. Um, I'd do eighty grand in a diversified core through ETFs and those types of things, and then maybe have the remaining twenty for other things. Uh, so that's that's just a quick answer. That t- you can subscribe to RASCore. it's only ten bucks a month. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, so this question is probably the one that I wanted to get to the most, Drew, because uh, before we get to the final one. Um, F-U-H-S-B-C, so this is spelt F-U space A-C-H-E-S-S space E-E-E-S-E-A, so F-U-H-S-B-C, says, Hi, Andrew Deremuth and Rowan Wask. Thanks for your short summer series podcast. It fired me up to contact my bank and haggle a bit better on my mortgage. I got 1.47% knocked off the top through hassling my bank. Cheers, F-U-H-S-B-C.
1: <laughs> well, this I actually got a call from my mortgage broker uh, this week and he's just said, oh, by the way, we've been uh, uh, reviewing clients' back book. So if you had a mortgage in the last three years um, yep. and I think I got the same amount knocked off mine. So he went out and did it for me. I just got a letter from Macquarie saying,
0: your interest rate's lower. <laughs> Jesus, that's pretty good. I, I will take that. So um, I think that's thats great. I think it's really, really great. So... Um, Drew, why do uh, register registry underscore your call will be answered in greater than 45 minutes says, why do share registries suck? Short answer, please.
1: These are our tech firms. So like ComputerShare and Link, are the tech firms of Australia, the biggest tech firms. Uh, too profitable, not enough, comp- not too profitable, I can't say that, but um, they're, they're profitable as they are and there's not a significant amount of competition coming in. They've got Essentially, why? Because they have in a monopolistic position. Yep. They're, they're in every company. They've got great relationships and they've got a reasonable service so far. But it's still- It does the you know, job. <laughs> yeah, it does the job and there's a monopoly. So I uh, suggest at some point it'd be ripe for disruption, but they'll probably disrupt themselves by leveraging more technology. It's like, mm. how hard is it to, get, to not be sent a holding statement? Um,
0: Yeah, it's quite difficult. It took them years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Clueless doctor writes in, Drew, this is one for you. What would you consider to be a reasonable accounting slash management slash auditing fee for an SMSF? I'm with a firm that specializes in medical practitioners and I'm mindful that I'm being overcharged. Just as a rough rule of thumb. I think this is highly commoditized sector.
1: So it's tax returns for SMSFs quite generally straightforward. Um, I'd say the maximum, assuming you don't have any Oh, there is a things. there's a house in there. Usually about three and three thousand three hundred um, is what you'd expect. If you, okay. if you don't have direct property, it can be cheaper. Um, but that's yeah, three three. Uh, I've seen it up to like nine thousand dollars for some mm-hmm. um, for some SMSF tax returns. Uh, if there's a property, you know, it can be a slightly higher cost too.
0: Yep. Um, NFT or NFI uh, says, I'm a little confused on how to choose my shares. I understand that I should look for good companies with future growth prospects, good management, and buy them for a good price. However, whenever I listen to some other well-respected investment (laughs) podcasts, not finance bros (laughs) like Drew or Finfluencers (laughs) like yourself, a number of analysts always bring up the chart analysis and talk about candles and moving averages, while other analysts make fun of the whole thing. So confused and would appreciate the discussion on the topic. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a whole podcast in itself. So, I mean, I'd probably make fun of that stuff as well, to be honest. I, I I always try and invert, as Charlie would say, and listen to what these people have to say, but it makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's just bizarre behavior, I, to be honest. So I would just stick with finding an investment process that works. Um, You can, you can check out – I did a self-wealth live this week and I honestly believe NFT or NFI – Um, I did a self-wealth live show this week, which will, I think it is exactly what you want to listen to and watch. So there's a link in the show notes to a self-wealth live segment I did on how to build an investment process. And in that, I talk about how to use something like the ticket terminal, screen for companies, how to build an investment philosophy, how to build an investment process, how to use a checklist, and how to put those things into your portfolio or on your watch list. End-to-end stuff. Go and check it out. It's really good. Um, so, And the final question, which we might just uh, end with, Drew, is this one comes from where is Brenda Buffett? I
1: thought you were going to ask Owen's great
0: asset. Oh, okay, here we go. So I'll do one more then. We're sneaking this cheeky one. Owen's great asset uh, says, thanks for the show. Concessional super contributions or stocks? For an early career individual, apart from being able to access your money, are there reasons to invest in stocks rather than contributing money to super? There's a tax advantage, investing for the long term, limited window window for concessional contributions. What would your advice be? Um, general advice only, of course, Drew, what do you think? Stocks are super. Um,
1: yes. be yeah, yeah there's nothing s- says you can't do both. Concessional super contributions, great tax-effective strategy. You can actually take control and buy stocks in your super fund if, if that's you're trying to go through that process at the same time. So, um, I think you can do both, uh, and don't. But they're driven by different things. Concessional contributions are driven by tax; shares are driven by pursuit of returns.
0: Yeah, I would say do both, and I would say don't rely on one over the the at the expense of the other. So. Um, Concessional contributions is great, but I mean, we spoke last week about uh, some taxes coming into super, and I can only see more of those. This is I just think that the super system is a massive honeypot for governments to stuff around with, and it becomes very political. And so do both, um, just do both, especially if you want to re- pursue something like the financial independence retire early movement. If you want to retire early, well, there's your answer. You want to be investing outside of super as well. Yeah, so, so a final question. This is one which we, uh, I am eager to get to, which is um, where is? Brenda Buffett says it's International Women's Day, and whilst I'm not one to reflect much upon the day, I am an analyst, and I look around and see very, very few female peers. Why? The accounting industry has heaps of women, and both industries require similar levels of education and overtime. Love to hear your thoughts slash theories on what. It is about finance that turns so many females away. So, we're two dudes talking about this. Um,
1: <laughs> it's uh, not, not something we uh, can uh, offer too much guidance and insight, but we can reflect.
0: We can use our kind of like industry knowledge and, yeah. and say some things. So, firstly, I want to say, I want to actually, so I want to actually apologize to all the RAS communities because- I, in anticipation for International Women's Day, a week ago, I asked Kate to pull up all of our data on our audience from Spotify. It's the best platform for giving us gender and whatever. And on our finance podcast, which is most of the time hosted by a female host, we have 67% of our audience as men, which is fantastic. I want everyone to listen to that show. But that has skewed over the course of the past two to three years, from roughly majority women to now two-thirds male. Now, there's two ways to interpret that, in my opinion. One way is it is fantastic that so many men are listening to a podcast that has so many female hosts, and why shouldn't they? The other way to interpret it is ladies aren't listening to that podcast enough. Uh, I don't think we've lost women. But I just don't think we've acquired enough, and so I don't know. That's something that I'm I take it like can to my heart. That is something that we will change over the next year. It is like my big overarching mission. Here on the finance on the investors podcast, the podcast that you're listening to right now, the skew is even more heavily towards females. So there's a finance bro here, and myself is <laughs> a male influencer, <laughs> and uh, and. This is something that I am seeking to change. And so by that, I mean, we have just recruited someone who I'm hoping will appear regularly on these shows. Um, So potentially she will even just host Drew and I uh, and give different perspectives. So this is something that we want to change because many, many, many studies show, and Drew, I'll hand over to you in just a sec. Many studies show that women tend to, not always, tend to, Save more money and tend to invest uh, to the tune of 200 basis points a year better than their male counterparts. Um, Now that's a very we're generalizing here, but all I'm saying is that I think as a business here at Rask, we can do more. Uh, We hire majority females. Uh, Currently, I'm the only full time male, um, and have always been. um, We've always had more women in the business, so we've always tried but there's something that we're missing and I don't know what it is.
1: It's remember? probably this similar across our business, isn't it? You share the office with us and yeah. I think we've got 40 staff and probably close to be almost 50-50. Yeah. Or um, well, maybe but, even
0: more. I was thinking be more females in the office, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's not and it's not driven like a deliberate decision. It's just we just try to employ, employ the best people for the role, whoever it is, um, and it's tended to be – more women in the last five years um i think we this talked to giselle time. roo yeah hopefully um we talked to giselle Rue. if you i'm yeah. sure you've met her a few times in the office and this is something that is, she is constantly uh advocating and what we're working with her on how do we change it change something in the industry um which is uh, very difficult so what, what you see is that there's every room every event that i've been to and financial advice would be 95 percent men and to be negative there'd be more steves than there are women in the room which is just like disgrace kind of for the industry so yeah. um i think it looks like there's a it's a male dominated industry there's for a long time lack of enough role models or people in the industry to kind of um to to follow or to actually be interested in it and giselle talks about similar to what uh, What where is Brenda Buffett saying? Is that um, I think there's this there's this uh, thought that you know finance is incredibly challenging and complicated and and it's actually complete opposite. Um, Mm. Like it's we tend to overcomplicate this. this sector, uh, and I think part of part of the opportunity is just opening it up. And this is what you do on the podcast, and what Kate does, you know, democratizing education and, and helping improve financial literacy uh, for everyone. So, yeah, um, mm. I think that's it. Yeah, we're trying to put together a, a kind of a network. Uh, we don't want to just run lunches, or we want to create change somehow. We're not exactly sure how it is. Yep.
0: One of the challenges that I've always had, Drew, is I try and seek out, um, like I actively try and seek out high-quality fund managers who are female. I do the same for male, but I'm do. I I'm particularly interested. Um, and there's a few reasons for this. I think that the next 20 to 30 years of the investments industry is going to be dominated by behavioural economics because I think we've got all the tools that we need, Like, like we've got all the data, we've got all the computers. So what's left? Well, it's how you behave with money. And so I think that's why books like Morgan House's The Psychology of Money, I think that's why, you know, books like Evan Lucas's Mind Over Money do so well is because at the end of the day, we're realizing that behavioral features are important in our decision-making as it relates to money. And so I think, like, if you if you are put off finance because you think it's very numbers or whatever like this, I don't think that's try not to characterize it that way going forward because I think that's going to fundamentally change. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's something that's really exciting. And what I would say to anyone that's listening to this and you think that you want to come on the podcast, if you're an analyst like this person that wrote in, if you're a portfolio manager and you want to work with us, please let us know. If you're a financial planner, reach out to us. If you're a, like a female operating, manager, please reach out to us. We, we We just want to hear from you. So, we'll just have a chat and see how we can work on this together. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. And, you know, I think it's great. I don't really care about genders. I don't really, doesn't bother me, whatever. If you want to get involved in finance and investing, that is amazing. And if you want to be involved in this wonderful industry of ours and how it's evolving over time, please let us know because that's what we're here for. That's why the inside network, Jamie and Drew's business run the events that they do. It's why we do these podcasts. It's why we, give financial advice and all these types of things. So, um, yeah, I'm glad Brenda Buffett brought this to the table because it's a really important thing, as you can clearly hear, to both of us. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, and, yeah, that's about it, Drew. I think we've just got to choose who had the best name. There was one name that came through, which we didn't actually read out the question, was, hey, Dub, your zip is undone. Um, <laughs> so change your gears there. Um, that was a good one. Um, I did, to be honest... I'm in, I I like this one, Drew. You tell me what you think. I like this one. F-U-H-S-B-C.
1: <laughs> I have that or bin chicken. Okay. Just because we went to the zoo with my son the other day and he was more interested in the bin chickens than he was the elephants. So.
0: <laughs> but I'll yeah. go with yours. No, let me go. Back, so we got, we got bin chicken slash ibis if you wrote that or if, or if you F-U-H-S-B-C um, right into us. Uh, and let us know because we will give you a pass to the Value Investor Program. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, there is a big link that says ask a question on the RAS websites, but also uh, in your podcast player right now, you can send us your your questions. We love hearing from you, even if it's just general feedback, uh, or if you have a really nitty gritty question, um, we want to hear that too. So Drew from Model Partners, uh, there's a link in the show notes to get in touch, but thanks for joining me, man. It's good to see you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that Rask could help you in 2024. As many of you know, Rask has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies which considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you with someone who can. The first thing that I want to tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at Rask, which is the launch of our Rask Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch. And every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high growth strategy. The balanced strategy focuses on passive income and the high growth strategy focuses on longer term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX share research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios as well as other members-only content. It's called RASCore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 RASC community members have begun the RASC plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up, or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you whether you're a single income household or a couple, and you just want to protect what would happen if. You want to protect your family if something goes wrong. You want to protect your spouse if you lose your job. You want to protect yourself if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy. Insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that, but one of them is sometimes Some insurers will only work with financial advisors, but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Warden. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascor, you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax? I think you are because I think you have to. So, we've partnered with Nivexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All RASC users get 20% off an annual plan with Nivexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nivexa's software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nivexa, but they do create some great tools which the Rask community uses each and every day. Number eight. Want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator program helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we're on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our f- mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the, probably I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor an intermediate investor, you wanna know how to value Woolworths shares, or you simply just wanna understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the Rask Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000 and hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support RASC and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the RASC network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.